Hello there and welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. I hope you're well. What a crazy, nuts week we've just lived through and a very bleak and dark time for the hospitality and entertainment industry. That is why we've created the Irishman Abroad Online Comedy Club, a free live gig in your gaff this Monday night, October 5th at 9pm with lock-in and conference services. Our guest on the night will be our guest today, Paul Howard, in person having a chat there, Emer McLeisett and Sarah Breen, the creators of the Oh My God, What a Complete Ashling book series. We'll have magic and stand-up from Jack Wise and myself. And of course, we'll have Loa providing music for the show. It's usually a paid event, usually a benefit of being a patron of Irishman Abroad gets you free access to the show, but we're making it free. As I said, as we head into these darker months, I thought, why not make one of these shows absolutely free so that you can have the gig in your gaff? Arrange with friends, stream it to as many homes as you like via the lockin.io. As I said, the best way to support this show is to become a member of Irishman Abroad Premium over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. It is how you get access to the full episode. What you're about to hear is a sample or a long section from my conversation with Paul Howard. But over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad, each week you get access to the full episode, our other series, Irishman in America, which is getting very, very interesting, it has to be said. Irishman Running Abroad with Sonia O'Sullivan. And of course, the back catalogue of more than 400 episodes, spin-off series and live video. So that's all over there at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. I'd love you to consider signing up this week. Well, Paul Howard is my guest today, the creator of the cult character, Ross O'Carroll Kelly, who, if you don't already know, if you've been living under a rock, is a fictional rugby jock whose exploits are, you know, this is, this is a phenomenon. This is 1.5 million copies sold in Ireland alone. I mean, from the last days of the Celtic Tiger in 2007, one of my favourites, to the current book, Braywatch. Uh, enjoying a Ross O'Carroll Kelly book is as Irish as enjoying a slice of Brennan's bread. You need to get the new book, though. It is utterly brilliant. And here, Paul Howard explains to me exactly how the book came about and why he took Ross to where he takes him in this book. I won't ruin any of it. I'll let you enjoy it now. If you'd like to go back and hear the Paul Howard origin story of his time in sports journalism and what brought him to this place, that's there in the archive over at patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. Jigsaw.ie are the people I want to give a big shout out to this week. They are our chosen charity partner. Wherever you are in the world, there are young people struggling to deal with what is happening right now. There's grown-ups struggling too, but we all know how hard it is to be a young person. Add to that what the world is going through at this moment in time, and they need support. That's where Jigsaw.ie comes in. They are trying to help young people across all communities in Ireland develop and learn the mental health skills needed to survive in life. All of their services, all of their information are accessible through Jigsaw ie they could desperately do with a donation from you this week so if you can afford it go over to jigsaw.ie forward slash now or come with me on irishman running abroad and help me raise money through running for jigsaw.ie 
Apart from that, lads, this is an extract of the Paul Howard episode for this week. Enjoy. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Paul Howard, it's brilliant to have you back on Irish Man Abroad. I can't believe it. And you're probably hearing this a lot, but 20 years of Ross. Do, yeah. Let me ask you this to start with. Is he like a son to you? Like, do you have a real love for this guy or what is the relationship? My relationship with, with the character is completely different uh, to what it was uh, 22 years ago when I wrote the first column in the Sunday Tribune. I really hated the character and I hated that archetype, you know, I, I, the, the, the rugby jock. I suppose I was very, very class conscious growing up and I had a sense, I had a bit of a chip on my, sh- on my shoulder about, you know, being, being from a working class area and just sort of having a sense that these jock types would, would rule the world one day. <laughs> and I told the story a few times about going to get on the train one day uh, with art and trying to get into a carriage and uh, this guy in a blazer put his hand on my chest and said sorry dude this is a rock carriage <laughs> I know and, I haven't heard that story before uh, that yeah, really happened uh, this, uh, sorry dude this is a rock carriage <laughs> and the train was full like the first sort of three <laughs> carriages were completely packed and then the last carriage is empty except for like seven or eight of these guys in blazers and uh, he stopped me from getting on but as the doors closed and the train pulled away, he gave me the guns out the window. You know, <laughs> and it was the first time anyone had ever given me the guns. You know, so it was kind of like a load of those kind of incidences in my life kind of led me to to want to write about Ross. No one had ever really sent up the middle classes in Ireland in that way before. Mm. I mean, I, I didn't see any comedy, you know, that that sent up these jocks. No. South Dublin jock people, even though they were inherently hilarious to me. So I started writing the column. And when I read those early columns back now, I can I can hear my anger in them. Really? Yeah. The funny thing is that the, the interesting thing is that they're, they're not especially funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, we all we all cringe when we look back at, you know, things we did 20 years ago, 22 years ago. But I kind of realized this is what this is a way of one way in, in which it's, it has changed that the comedy is the most important thing to me now. And in those days, it was the satire. It just wasn't very subtle. Ryan Tuberty reviewed the very, uh, was, I think maybe the second book or the third book, but one of the early books in the series. And he said he could hear uh, the unmistakable sound of an axe being ground. Mm. And I was just delighted that he could hear that because <laughs> as, a, as a rock boy, I wanted him to hear it. But I suppose over the years, 
I wouldn't say I've kind of softened towards towards those people. I think I can probably see some of them have a kind of ironic sense about about themselves. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know what you mean. They can that you they see it as silly too. They do. I mean, I, I was at I was at Blackrock Michaels match last year, and uh, <laughs> they're all just I hadn't been to a schools match in a few years, you know, and they're all chanting at each other like they're different, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. like like a guy from Blackrock College, uh, you know, they're they're all going to end up working in the same, you know, solicitors firms, hundred percent, you know, yeah, all likely or. You know, and, and, and they would spend their entire lives talking about their, you know, where they went to school and how that marks them as different. But they're all essentially the same. They're yeah. all from the same background. But I think they do have an ironic sense of that. You know, there's a, you know, I mean, like Blackrock v. Michaels is, is hardly a battle of civilizations, you know, mm. they, they, but I think they kind of play up to the, the, the stereotype, stereotype as yeah. well. And maybe that's why I've kind of softened towards the character a bit. And I think as well as that, when when you write about a character for as long as I've written about Ross, I mean, you couldn't do it unless you actually developed some feeling for the character, some kind of empathy for him. And I think once he became, you know, once he got married and became a father and started to care about his children and care about his parents and care about his friends, there was a sort of more human side to him that was totally absent from those early books, which were just about smashing people over the head with, <laughs> with, the, with the, the, the satire. Yeah. And I don't think the books became subtle until maybe book six or seven or something, you know, and then, and I think that's when Ross started to become a bit more human. So that, yeah, that's when I started to, to like the character more than I maybe wanted to. Because he has, he has changed, as you say. He obviously had to change. I heard you talk to Roisin Ingle about uh, around the time of the beginning of the Me Too movement of how the sexism and the kind of uh, that side of him that wasn't it was it was more dismissive that he yeah. it, uh, women were a waste of time and <laughs> that uh, it was, you know, typical. They were typical and always more more of a bother to him than, than anything else. Did you feel yourself consciously turn the dial on him on certain things certainly that's really i think that that one you said about being a father is obvious that like that change comes about in all of us when we have a kid that's suddenly you're way more protective and much more conscious of the impact of the behaviors of others on your <laughs> your kid but did you feel yourself turning those dials no not consciously and and certainly not in response to the the me too movement i think the change had had come over ross Years earlier, you know, that, you know, there's a natural maturation process that you go through as you go as you go older. And Ross has never has never really gotten smarter, but he's I think emotionally he's much more clued in than he was. I was reading back through some of the earlier columns the other day, some of the Sunday Tribune columns when Ross was, you know, he was a misogynist and he spoke uh, about women in ways that I could never write about today. You know, I could never write about a character, mm. you know, at that character's point of view today because, you know, there's just no appetite for that to be heard. But this was like 20. I started writing Ross in the late 90s when that kind of new ladism thing was still in play. And I was writing about a teenage boy. I was I was writing you know, about the world through the eyes of a teenage boy um, who's privileged, um, who's grown up with, you know, very, very 
imperfect parents. And that's what that's what he sounds. That's, that's what, what he sounds, sounds like. But, yeah. You know, and, and I remember I think everyone listening to this who lived through that kind of loaded and FHM period remembers mm. as it being kind of it was a very odd time that way, particularly when you look back on it now as to what was yeah. acceptable and what what was OK to say. But the first one was, you know, self-published and you said you could understand why. But in hindsight, uh, pulping 4,000 of that original 5,000 that you got printed must <laughs> must be a regret on some level, given that they're going on eBay for a thousand euros each now. No, no, it's not quite a thousand. I mean, if it was a, if they were going for a thousand euro, I would just, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what I do. But they're going for a hundred sterling. OK. And what happened was we printed we printed 5000 books in a in a fit of optimism. When and you say we, is that no you or was there anyone else in that negotiation? Well, it was my decision. Ger Siggins edited the book and, and he said, how many will we go for? And uh, I said, what do you think, 5000? Like not knowing <laughs> what, a, you know, how optimistic it was, how many books that was until I started driving around in my, I was driving a, a, a Nissan Micra at the time and I was going from bookshop to bookshop sort of saying, you know, can you, you know, there's this book, it, it's about this uh, kid who grew up, in the Celt- he's kind of a poster boy for that sort of uh, Celtic Tiger pop era. And I explained it's a satire on, you know, people's lifestyle dreams during the Celtic Tiger, all that sort of stuff. And then the shop would say, oh, we'll definitely take 10. <laughs> And I've got 5,000 of these things and they're everywhere in the Sunday Tribune. Like they were, I mean, black and fire exits, I believe. Matt Cooper called me in at the time and said, "Uh, we've had a complaint from the NUJ fire safety (laughs) officer that the books are blocking the fire stairs. So you've got you've got to have to move. I thought that wasn't real. I thought that that was just a kind of figure of speech. There were so many of them, they were blocking the fire exits. No, but no, Matt they Cooper really actually rang you and said, stairs. we've had a complaint from the fire marshal. You yeah. need to get these books yeah. out. So of that, that's my that's my um, U2 on the roof of, um, of the building, you know, <laughs> where the streets have no name moment. You know, we're closing the location down. We've had a complaint from the fire safety marshal. But mine was get those books <laughs> off the stairs into a bookshop. But the problem i mean we so i think we sold about a thousand of the run yeah so that would that tells me we pulped four thousand just decided after about a year and this is before you know ross kind of caught hold like mm. you know you know like last week we sold the bray watch and the new book in the first three days we sold uh, close to four thousand copies in wow. the first three days in hard books and then ebooks as well so wow. Um, but but back then it was it was very much a cult thing, which a guy in a bookshop explained to me meant that everyone everyone's aware of it, but nobody bought it except my parents. <laughs> so 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 we took this decision, you know. I had to we had to do something with them. There's four thousand of them, and four thousand is a lot of books. Mm. So we sent them off to be pulped. And look, it's only you know twenty years later that I'm kicking myself because I see them changing hands for. You know, a hundred, hundred sterling each, and not only would I have had all of the books, I would have been able to control the market. market absolutely, <laughs> control but, the supply. You know, um, take hold is the word. I mean, it really, there had to be a turning point. I mean, here we are, a million copies later. You know, four hundred thousand theatre tickets, book awards coming out your ears. Do you remember a change taking place? And did you ever think? that you'd get to a point where Ross would go to Bray of all places. 
the, the change, a couple of things happened. I think it, 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 Ross started to become part of the kind of the, the, the conversation. You know, yeah. once he was linked to the Celtic Tiger, I think that's when it started to take off. The first couple of years I was writing the column, it was just it was just sending up rugby culture, mm-hmm. and then you know, columnists started to refer to, you know, the Russell Carroll Kelly generation and Russell Carroll Kelly type people. I remember George Hook mentioned Ross in a in his halftime commentary or so halftime um, punditry during a Six Nations match. He, he talked about the Ross, the Charles O'Carroll Kelly types. And it was the first time I'd ever heard him referred to on television in that way. And then a couple of things happened. I, I wrote a, a spoof coming up to 20 years ago now I wrote a spoof of the Eminem song Stan Hmm. it was called Kellyanne and I just kind of rewrote the lyrics where this girl in UCD is stalking Ross and um, this is days before social media before you know you could send things around on Twitter and WhatsApp and everything Hmm. but people were emailing it to each other and I, I got it sent to me because the, the the email that was going around didn't actually say it was Ross O'Carroll Kelly. It was just, here's a South Dublin version of, of, yes. of Kelly. And, and about 20 people sent it to me saying, oh, you write that Ross thing. You might be interested in this. <laughs> it was something I'd written. And uh, yeah, and that was it. And then I, I went to UCD to do a reading. And um, uh, that was around 2001. And uh, so many people turned up that they had to they had to shut the event down because of fire safety concerns. Yeah, no, um, I mean, I was there at the time. I mean, I, I remember yeah. it. And I, and I also remember just how it was a book everyone had on them at that point. If you right. didn't, if you didn't, it was as, it was as common in a university residence as, you know, book fast and Dutch gold at the time. It was just on every table. <laughs> I was the literary Dutch gold. <laughs> it was just <laughs> everywhere. Um, but this new book, I do want to talk about this one because it is something that's come about in a strange kind of way because of a letter you received from the people of Bray saying, yeah. we like the books, but can you be nice about Bray? <laughs> yeah, it's from the Chamber of Commerce in Bray. And I, I think the, the people, the people who were behind, who wrote the letter, actually, they know me. Like they know, they know I'm always in Bray. They know of my connection to Bray. Um, I spent kind of most of my teens, about my later teens, and almost all of my twenties hanging out in Bray. You know, in the pubs and nightclubs of Bray, and I lived in Greystones for a lot of years. So um, I would come into Bray quite a lot as well, and. It's just always a town that's that that's been dear to me, you know, and um, I've always loved it. But Ross has never said a good word about it in <laughs> 22 years. He refers to it as a bray of all places, and it's it is just his his idea of hell. And I just thought it would be nice if Ross discovered the bray that I know, the bray that I love. And um, I had this storyline in Schmidt happens where the last book where. He gets he has a conversation with Joe Schmidt and Joe Schmidt says to him, what's the point in having this rugby tactics book in which you write down all your thoughts on the game if you don't go and test them on someone? You don't go and try them out. And he persuades Ross to actually look for a coaching job. And so so Ross goes to an interview in Pres Bray, um, a school I know pretty well. And he goes and meets the, the head brother there and and does an interview. And he meets the kids then and 
you know, they're, they're playing Blackrock College in the first round of the Senior Cup. And their ambition is to try to keep the keep the the, the, the losing point score to <laughs> double figures, right? <laughs> Stop BlackRock scoring 100. <laughs> and uh, and he persuades them that they can they can beat BlackRock. Well, they think he's mad, like, but he, he tells them you can beat BlackRock and then you can you can win the Leinster School Senior Cup. And so they go on this uh, on a bit of a journey together. But he goes on a journey as well because while he's doing the, while he's teaching them everything he knows about rugby, he's discovering that he's he's falling in love with Bray. So he's kind of seeing the Bray that uh, that I know, the Bray that I love. It it really does sound like one of these Coach Carter sports movies. <laughs> was that was that at all in your mind doing it uh, Friday Night Lights? Because yeah. I'd imagine there. You know, I have heard people say that it is quite moving at times how he lights the fire in these kids that don't believe in themselves yeah. to, to to go on the road with them. Yeah, and and that's one of the some of the most kind of enjoyable Ross moments to write have been those dressing room scenes. You know, we had this this really inspiring priest at school who was the coach of the senior cup team called Father Feli, and he, you know. I mean, he was he was quoting kind of Hitler, you know, he was from some Hitler's more famous speeches uh, and the Bible, like almost in the same breath, you know, but just anything to to inspire the kids. And Ross has kind of developed a little bit of that as well. You know, he's um, he's taken a lot of Father Feli's lessons and he's um, he's trying them out in the kids. And, you know, has some success along the way as well. You know, uh, one of the things that you've said before is the the key to this and the set at the centre of this was meeting Maeve Binchy and her explaining to you the importance of eavesdropping. Can you maybe mm. walk us through uh, exactly how much that factors into composing a book now? versus yeah. the the beginning. I mean, I'd well, imagine that a lot of like some of the stuff you read in it, clearly you go that there's no way you dreamt that up. There's absolutely no way that <laughs> that was heard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, th there's may what maybe actually said to me was to be a good writer, you have to be a good listener. OK. Um, and then she just explained her MO, which was that she goes she would go to coffee shops and, and you know, scribble notes from, from conversations. I don't know if she used a dictaphone. She might well have. So I, I was doing that a lot at the beginning. I suppose once I found Ross's voice, I didn't need to do it so much. And um, I think when I became, you know, kind of, I mean, I'm not, I'm not instantly recognizable to, to most people, but, you know, people some people know who i am especially kind of if i go to those areas where i used to get good material i can't sit in evoke hand weavers anymore for instance <laughs> because people there know me uh and and will get up and move away like you know if they think i'm eavesdropping on conversation so i can't really do that anymore but i suppose the good thing is that social media happened so you can you don't actually need to leave your office to to see this stuff now mm -hmm. and People volunteer things to me all the time. I'm kind of shocked at how readily people will tell me em embarrassing lifestyle stories about themselves. Like, for instance, um, during, <laughs> during the lockdown, I got, I, you know, I got a contact from somebody who was telling me that 
there was the, this ban on evictions during the course of the lockdown. I think it finished at the end of or the start of August and that they had a tenant, a sitting tenant in their holiday home in British Bay who was refusing to leave because they, you know, had decided, well, you can't do anything. You can't evict me. So they were st- essentially decided to stay for the summer rent free. Mm. And it was kind of the the sort of shrill indignation of this. <laughs> I think, why are you telling me this? You know I'm going to write a story about this. You know? <laughs> and uh, so the stories tend to come to me now. Yeah. I don't, I mean, a lot of it, a lot of the stuff I do uh, dream up, but some of it like that story and then the banana bread story, there was this mania for banana bread um, <laughs> during, the, during the first sort of six weeks of the lockdown. Everybody was baking loaves and loaves of banana bread, including Mary, my wife. And, and I don't even like banana bread. You know, I was eating this banana bread for <laughs> breakfast, lunch and dinner. And uh, we, we would buy all this fruit. And I think this was the case with everybody. We all just went to the supermarket And in a time where you feel threatened, right, or, you know, when you feel in danger, imperiled, uh, your first instinct is, well, I've got to eat right. I have to I have to be healthy, like, you know, just to protect myself and my loved ones. So you start buying fruit and veg, which you have absolutely no intention of eating, like you know, (laughs) we'd be buying watermelons like, oh, yeah, we will definitely cut up a watermelon and slice it up into little cubes and eat that. And then like two weeks later, it's just going in the bin and then we buy another one and don't eat that one either. But anyway, this mania for for bananas resulted in a mania for banana bread. And I noticed on my people, it's everybody swapping recipes and, you know, I'm doing Nigella Lawson's and I'm doing the happy pear one and swapping recipes with each other. And then people were swapping bread. And I wrote this column in the Irish Times where Circa has made six loaves of banana bread and she sends Ross out to the neighbor's houses with them to give them out. <laughs> but they all give him bread as well. <laughs> he leaves with six loaves and he comes back with 10. Right? <laughs> it's like, how are we going to get rid of this banana bread? So that all that's all generated by just observing things on social media and kind of looking at, you know, funny trends, lifestyle trends in particular. But after the column appeared, two loaves of banana bread uh, appeared on my doorstep (laughs) with notes from the neighbors saying we read the column. One of them, they didn't even say who it was from, you know. (laughs) So we ended up eating that along with our own banana bread. I mean, it's like it's it's an institution. That's what they say. Right. And I would go along with that. It's it really is, as you say, it's part of vernacular. It's it's a go to phrase when somebody behaves a certain way is that's so Ross. I mean, it's it's nearly so Ashling. I I wondered if after this book, like it's the same way with bands and albums and people are immediately leaning on you. What what, what happens next? Mm. Do you, there must be a residual fatigue to to it. Or do you do you not experience that? Or is the next book in the notebook ready to go? Yeah, I mean, it. I mean, there isn't a fatigue in that. Look, I get up, I get up at five o'clock in the morning to work and I have to be funny at five o'clock in the morning. And that's that's tough. You know, I don't jump out of the bed every morning singing June is bursting out all over. Like, you know, it, it is it's work to get me to the desk. But there are days when it's easier than others. But it is work. And I've never forgotten that it's work. Like I've never kind of felt that this is just this is just a breeze. Like every book I write, I spend, you know, I spend a month 
writing down storyline ideas, which then I send uh, to Rachel Pierce, my editor. And then we have a meeting and we discuss the storyline ideas, where individual characters are going. Okay. Uh, I hate to use the phrase journey, but I suppose it is a journey. And then I sit down and I plot the book and I plot my books beat by beat. So I plot every single thing that's going to happen in each chapter of the book very, very intricately. So I know there's no kind of surprises. So then the writing is kind of about, you know, teasing out the plot and then and then the rising the jokes, you know, the, the one liners that um, mm. you hope are funny. So when when a book comes out, so Bray Watch is out now, I'm already into the process of the next book. So I'm writing the book that will be out next September. I'll write it between October and Christmas and then there'll be about a three month period of editing it. And make There you have it, a short extract of my conversation with Paul Howard this week. Hear the full thing over at patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. Become a premium member and start enjoying the many, many benefits. I will see you on Monday night for that free live Irishman Abroad online comedy club with Emer McLeisett, Sarah Breen, Paul Howard himself doing more and Jack Wise the Magician and Loa doing music. It's going to be great. It's a gig in your gaff, thanks to lock-in and conference services. Shout out to our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw.ie. Go back and listen to the Marion McKeown episode this Thursday. It obviously arrived just before the diagnosis of Donald Trump with COVID-19. But it is a banger of an episode where we sift through the rubble of that first debate, which now may be the only presidential debate that we get this time around. You don't want to miss this episode. It's over there in short in the feed here or in full over at patreon.com. Uh, my name is Jarlith Regan. It has been a pleasure talking to you for this short length of time. Uh, my thanks to my producer Brian Connolly to the extra research from John Marr to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible and I will see you on Monday night at the gig in your gaff at 9pm at thelockin.io stream it for free and I'll see you then